The word of the Lord says this. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob, and all his offspring with him. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. Good to gather in God's house this morning. The, the deacons and I were talking before uh, the service and were lamenting uh, about how we can become so comfortable not coming to church anymore, and we can make our living rooms church. Uh, I'm grateful for technology, and that gave us the opportunity to do church in our living room for a season, but I don't believe that's ever how God intended His church to gather. So if you're online listening and your sole reason is because you don't want to come to church and you want to be in your PJs, uh, I'll give you a stern rebuke that you need to be in church. Uh, If it's for other reasons, then continue to watch online. But if you're just simply uh, not wanting to come to the building because you want to stay comfortable at your house, uh, I don't believe that's what God's will for you or designed for us as the church. We need to gather as God's people together. And you that are here this morning, thank you for being uh, here in God's house with God's people. Just a few announcements, and then I'll jump into God's word and pray that this word is from him and will bring uh, hope, truth, and correction to us. Uh, Three announcements. There was a baby shower planned for this afternoon for Deborah and Lance and the baby that's coming at four o'clock. Due to the weather, we've postponed that again. Um, I promise we'll have a baby shower. I don't know how we'll pull it off. If it keeps raining or snowing, we'll make sure that baby is taken care of. Uh, so make your, mark your calendar. That's next um, Sunday at 4. That's a drive-through uh, baby shower at Lance and Deborah's. If you need uh, directions, see me, see Lance, Deborah, or Miss Patty. It's, oh, it's here. Drive-through's here at the church. That was not in my notes. So um, It's here at the church, so everyone knows how to get here. At 4 o'clock still? Okay, so baby shower here at the church at 4 o'clock, a drive-thru. The next, there will be a Easter egg hunt March the 21st at 9.30. Uh, That's right before uh, church starts at 10.15. So please um, make that known to your children. We want to do an Easter egg hunt outside, uh, weather permitting. The children's committee is asking and requesting donations for candy for that Easter egg hunt. So if you have some candy, you want to bring some candy, uh, just see Miss Jerry with that candy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then jump into Genesis chapter uh, 46 this morning. Let us quiet our hearts before the Lord. 
God, I pray that you would allow us to experience you in a new and fresh way this morning. You promise that you are with us when we gather as your church. So we don't ask that you come, that we ask that you would open our eyes to see that you are already here and you are already among us and with us. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to do what you uh, are gifted to do, and that's bring encouragement, correction, rebuke, and peace. You are the God of peace. And Jesus, I pray for us that we would see in this text, you are the light of the world, you are our salvation. I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know you and trust you and believe in you as both Lord and Savior of your life, that this morning you would call them to yourself and they would respond in obedience with repentance of heart. So now, God, again, we come, as Paul says, to offer our our lives as a living and holy sacrifice. We place them at your altar, at your feet, to do your will through this passage and this message and this service in our lives. Lead us, guide us, direct us, and bring us hope. I pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. We are coming around the bend, if you will. We have just a few chapters remaining. God's uh, will, we will be done in the next uh, four weeks, uh, not including this weekend. So four more messages in the book of Genesis. Um, I was talking to some friends over the weekend, uh, and they were asking me what I was teaching through. And I said, we've been in Genesis. Uh, It may surprise you. It may, may for some of you, like, man, it feels that long. It has not felt that long for me. We've been in Genesis for almost two years. Um, if that surprises anyone, I was looking back through my notes, and I was like, wow, two years we've been in Genesis. Just over 19 uh, months, uh, I believe, if my numbers are correct. So we're coming to the end of Genesis. We've started the book of Genesis because it's the origins of all that we believe, and all of our doctrines can be found in the book of Genesis, all of God's promises for his deliverance of his people are found in Genesis. But what it also is found in Genesis is the origin of sin, where man fell away from God. And so all of us in this room have fallen away from God. We know that from the Apostle Paul. But thank God he did not leave us in our sin condition. Thank God that he provided a way that he told us about in Genesis chapter 3, that there would be a man or a savior or a messiah that would come and crush the head of Satan. And then he told us that it would come through this line, this chosen people, the Israelites, God's chosen people. And we today, the church, are still God's chosen people, as I'll get to at the very end. God chose us to be the hope of the world, to bring redemption to the world, to bring his message of salvation to those that are still suffering, those who are still far from God. We're going to see a few things in this passage in regards to that. He's going to start off in the passage, Moses, the writer, is going to remind God's chosen people a few things. But I think they're so applicable for us this morning. And so this morning, the first point is this, the assurance about Egypt. 
Because if we're truthful with ourselves, all of us live in Egypt. Remember, Egypt was a pagan place run by pagan people. Is that not true for us here in America today? Maybe more than ever. And I don't just simply mean who's in the presidency. I just simply mean we live in a pagan, fallen world. That by all accounts seems to be getting more and more pagan. We are heading in the wrong direction, not the right direction. But God is going to show and reveal his promises to us that even in the midst of all that, he's still with us and he has a purpose and a plan and a hope for us. And we are the hope to this lost world. And so we'll catch up to where the story ended last week. Remember that there's this reuniting that's happening, that Joseph has been told uh, to Jacob has been told that his youngest son, who he thought was dead, was alive. Twenty two years, twenty three years that Jacob thought his beloved son was dead. And now all of a sudden the brothers come back from Egypt, their second trip back and tell Jacob, no, no, the son revealed himself to us. He's alive and God's placed him in this prominent position. And it says that Joseph, Jacob's heart was numb. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe what his children were telling him. But they began to tell him over and over. And finally, Jacob said, let's go see him. I must see him before I die. And so there's where we're at in the story. Now they're about to make their third and final journey into Egypt. This is such a key moment in the history of Israel. This is the key moment. Remember that God had taken God's people, the, the, the chosen people, and had said to them, hey, I'm going to put you in the promised land. Egypt was not the promised land. And now all of a sudden, God's going to call out God's chosen people to a pagan land. And that's where God, God's going to say to them in this passage, God's going to bless them outside of the promised land. And as we know through the rest of the Bible, the next 430 years, Israel's in bondage and slavery to a wicked, wicked Pharaoh. So much so that they begin to cry out to God and crying out to God, God hears the cries of his people and God sends Moses to deliver his people. But God the whole while has been moving his people to this place. And now here's the critical moment that takes God's chosen people into a pagan land. And this is what he says. So Israel or Jacob took his journey with all that he had. And came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Jacob or Israel in a vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I will, I will be with you. I will go with you to Egypt, and I also will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand will close your eyes. The first thing that we see is reassurance. But I want to point out where the reassurance started. Circle in your Bibles the word Beersheba. Beersheba was a place of worship for the patriarchs. 
Remember when God made a promise to Abraham, one of the places that God made that promise was in Beersheba. Beersheba was the very place that he said to Abraham, go and take Isaac and go and worship me and go and sacrifice to me. And remember what Abraham did. He was obedient to that worship. He was obedient to listening to God to take Isaac to be sacrificed. But it was in that moment of obedience that God saw the heart of Abraham and saw Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son that God made a provision. And in that moment of provision, Abraham worshipped. But where? Beersheba. Remember Isaac, Jacob's father. Isaac worshipped there also and received the promise that God would make them into a blessed nation, a mighty nation. That's in Genesis chapter 26. And in that moment of promise, in that moment, what does... Isaac do, he worships God. And then remember in chapter 28, before Jacob, before this part of the story, we see Jacob is worshiping. That's where they set up the tent. That's where he dwells. And so we know that would have been a place of worship for him. And so I wonder for us, church, where is our place of worship first before God calls us? the impossible. Where's the worship in your heart and in my heart and in the heart of this church? Because there has to be a heart of worship before God's ever going to call us to something. Because if we don't worship God, if we don't truly know God, then we won't respond in obedience to God. And so Jacob had the heart of worship. Jacob had the heart of obedience. But Jacob also had the heart of fear. Remember all the times the patriarchs had gone into Egypt. Before this, it didn't end up well for them. Remember Jacob's granddad, Abraham, when he went to Egypt. He sold his wife out. Like Egypt to them was a wicked place. And so when God had said to go down to Egypt, there had to be a stirring in Jacob's heart, like, is this really what God is calling me to? Like, are you really, God, calling me out of the land of promise that you gave to us and you told us you'd make us into a mighty nation? And so he's wrestling with the Lord. We, we know that not because the text explicitly says that, but it says three different things, four if you include the last, three things that God says to Jacob about not having fear in his obedience. The first one is this. The first assurance of his fear is this. He says in verse 3, do not be fearful, but go to Egypt. How come? Because God says, I am going to keep my promises. Remember what the promise was. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And so, church, we don't have to live with anxiety. We don't have to live with this overwhelming fear because we can be reminded that when God makes promises to us, He will always fulfill those promises. We have assurance, even in the midst of Egypt, even in the midst of where we are. How do we have that promise? Because God has made us promise after promise after promise in His Word. And He will be faithful to His promise, but He'll be faithful to us 
and keeping his promises. And so I often think we don't aren't obedient to God because we don't trust his promises and because we don't trust God to keep his promises. But here he says to Jacob, he says to Israel, I promise I'm going to keep all of my promises. But here's what often happens when God keeps his promise. We will experience persecution first. We're going to see that. You see, Jacob didn't get the luxury or the privilege of seeing the promises of this mighty nation be totally fulfilled. In a few moments, you'll see he goes down uh, with uh, around 70 people into Egypt. Well after he dies, the mighty nation has risen so much that Pharaoh is frightened out of his mind. So here's the other part of the promise. We will face persecution, and even though we face persecution, we may not always see his promises fulfilled on this side of eternity. But we, the church, have the promise that we will dwell with God forever through Christ Jesus. So despite the promises that are here, we have a greater promise to look forward to. Amen, church? So he says to him, I will keep my promises with you. But it's going to be in hardship. Anyone can testify to that? You've seen God's promises, but you've seen them first through your hardship. That's not the way I would choose to do it, but that's the way God chooses to do it. I believe he chooses to do it that way because when we're under persecution, it strips us of us of our own self-will and makes us totally dependent on God. Because if we were dependent on ourselves, we'd change the circumstances, would we not? Don't you think the Israelites, the, the people of God would have chosen a different way other than live in persecution for 430 years? But it stripped them of themselves and made them cry out to God so much so that God finally says, I will keep my promise. So the first promise that God, the first thing that we are not to fear is because God keeps his promises. Well, here's the more powerful thing, in my opinion, about not having fear. He says, do not have fear because why? I'm with you. I'm with you in the persecution. He, he tells him, not only are all the promises of being a great nation are going to come true, but the promise that I will be with you will always be true. So whatever you're going through today, church, as a believer, we hold on to the promise that God is with us. All that we've gone through, all the tribulation, God says to us, I will be with you. So the first reason we do not have fear is because God keeps his promise. The second reason we are not to fear is because God is with us through our circumstances and our persecution. The third one is this. He says, do not fear because what? God will deliver you. He says that in the passage, I, I will take you down to Egypt. I'll take you into your persecution. I will keep my promise to make you a good nation. I will be with you as you go down to Egypt. And I will what? Also bring you up again. We can hold God to the promise that he will 
deliver us. So here's the reality. He may not deliver you the way you were hoping. He may not deliver you when you were hoping. He may not deliver how you were hoping, but we hold God to the promise, you and I will be delivered. Again, I think we don't believe in God's deliverance, so we take it into our own power to do our own way to deliver ourselves, and that always leads in a disaster, does it not? And the last one is this, we are not to fear. I think you can put this on to God, but it says this. I'll also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. To me, that says, and God will be with us and bring us comfort in all of this. That's all Joseph wanted, or Jacob wanted, was to be with his son, to see his son again. And God made that promise that he would. And God brought Jacob comfort that day. And so church, we can have the assurance that God is with us in this persecution because he holds to his promises. He's with us in our persecution. He delivers us and brings us comfort in this persecution. And now they go down to Egypt. They trek down to Egypt. I'll spare us from having to read all the names. I'll say this in reading all the names. It's so important. Many people come uh, to uh, genealogies and they think, what is the point? The point is always to point us back to God. The point is to show us that God has a passion, that God has a plan. And so he's doing that again. I'm going to read this because I will butcher it if I try to do it any other way. This is from a commentary about all these names. It's not going to take a mathematician to realize early on that the math doesn't add up. He's going to say that there's 70 people, but if you do the math, it's like, well, that. so was the writer off? Was Moses off? No. And I'll get to what I believe that Moses was getting at, but this is what one of the scholars say. I'll read this, quote him. It says, Leah and Rachel bore twice as many descendants as their maids. Leah had 33 and her maid, Zilpha, had 16. That's twice as many. Rachel had 14 and her maid. Belha had seven. These numbers, 33 plus 16 plus 14 plus 7, equal 70. However, the writer notes also in, 60, in verse 60, that there's 66 in verse 27, made the trip to Ur. They, Ur and Onan were buried in Canaan, so that takes us down more numbers. Joseph and Manasseh and Ephraim were already in Egypt, verse 27. This equals 65. So there's another person in verse 15. Dinah, she must have had more people that added to the number to get us to 66. So how is it that the writer says 70, but the math says 66. This is what the scholars believe, and I believe this to be true as well. There's one way. There's no way to satisfactorily solve the problem and reconcile the difference unless 70 is understood here as a topography or typology, meaning that the number is, the significant of 70 is what's important, not how many came up. So the writer's going to take 70. 70's the perfect number blended by two other perfect numbers. Remember, 
Seven is the perfect number. Ten, the Ten Commandments are a perfect number. You take seven times ten, you get to 70. So what the writer is saying here is it's the completion more than the numbers. You see here in the East, we're way more concerned about accuracy. Eastern writers were way more concerned about what it meant than the accuracy of it. So 70 is a complete number. So what the writer Moses is saying is the complete nation of Israel moved in. Everyone moved in to Egypt. So again, it's one of those places in the Bible. It's like, man, couldn't the writer just have done his math a little bit better? He was not concerned about his math. He was concerned that we would understand that the, the number 70 was about completion rather than accuracy. So now we'll move on to the last point. Now, finally, the crescendo of Jacob's life. We've spent more time in the life of Jacob than any other patriarch. And now we come to near the end of his life in verses 31 through 34. But it says this about verses 31 through 34. Let me read that and then teach just a moment on it. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds. And they have been keeping their livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you, say and says to you, what is your occupation? You shall say, we, your servants, have been keepers of the livestock from our youth until now, both we and our fathers, in order that we may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So here we see God finally uses Pharaoh to enter in to Egypt, the people of God, for salvation. But in the midst of doing that, Joseph has a conversation with his brothers. In the conversation, he says, hey, when Pharaoh comes to you and says to you, hey, what's your occupation? You're to tell them you are shepherds. And in telling them you're shepherds, Pharaoh is going to now place you outside of the city. You can't have sheep in the city. It just doesn't work that way. But what we'll find out in the text as we go on, Goshen, where, where Pharaoh puts the Israelites, is the choicest part of the land. So God's going to call his people into persecution, Egypt. But in calling God's people, his people, into persecution, he's also going to bless God's people. So the first thing that we see is the blessing of God, even in the midst of their circumstances. But not only that, we see the separation of God's people from pagan people. Remember what it said at the bottom of the text. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptian. The, the Egyptians would have had nothing to do with the Israelites. Therefore, God was going to separate his people from being with pagan people. Why would God do that? To keep his people pure. Not because... Egyptians are despicable people. But there must be a purity in God's people that makes God's people distinct from the world. Remember what happened to Lot when Lot decided to get closer and closer and closer to the city. He became just like the city, and God 
wiped them all out. And so now God is going to protect his chosen people even when he calls them into persecution to keep his people holy and pure. This has huge implications for us. God has called us into a pagan world. But we must stay separated from a pagan world. I was telling the deacons this this morning, how blended we've come, the world and the church. And you cannot tell the world and the church apart any longer. That ought to, as a church, terrify us. Because what God says to us, we are a holy nation, a holy priesthood, chosen by God to enter into a lost world to be the salt and light of the world. Therefore, we must be distinct. But my great fear is for the church, not just Powell's Chapel, but universal. We want the easy way. We want to avoid persecution. But God has called us to persecution to be different from the world so that the world will see something different in us and begin to ask questions about us that then we can say, this is what makes us different. This is what makes us unique. This is what distincts us from you. We serve a holy God and God has called us to holiness and God is calling you to holiness. And that's what God is doing in the midst of the persecution is separating them so that the Egyptians can look and see, wait, there is a difference. We see that play out all the way into the Exodus story. The very last plague in the Exodus story is what? God separating his people from the Egyptians through the shed blood of the lamb. That's what separated God's people from pagan people. That is still what God's people are separated by. Simply the blood of the Lamb. But now we must do something with that blood that's been covered on us. We must go back into the world, stay holy, stay separate, as we enter into persecution to bring the light of the world to people. So I ask you this question in twofold. Where do you dwell? Do you dwell with the world, in the world? Or do you dwell apart from the world? So separated the world, the world doesn't even see you. See, both are sinful. God didn't call us to a bubble. And God didn't call us to migrate into the world. God called us to dwell with him in the world. And so where do you dwell? With him in the world? Or separate from the world? Or in the world? But God wants to use his church to redeem the world. Therefore, we must dwell in the, in the Lord as we dwell in the world. But then I go back and submit to you. Yes, it's going to come with a great cost. And it will be terrifying to dwell in the, in the world and not be of the world. But we can hold on to these three promises, the fourth, if you'd like. The first, God will keep his promises with his church. God will be with us as we dwell in this wicked, pagan world. And God will deliver us over and over and over again, ultimately to heaven itself. And lastly, God will bring us comfort as we dwell in the world. May the world never bring you comfort. May it be from Christ and Christ alone.
Let me pray for us this morning. God, may we live separate from the world. But as we live in the world, make us distinct from the world. Let us hold you to what you tell us in this passage that we are not to fear as you move us into Egypt. Because you'll keep your promises with us. You'll be with us as you keep your promises. You will deliver us and you will bring us great comfort. I pray that we would hold that to be true. May we dwell with you as we dwell in this pagan world. Be with us. Give us grace and peace and courage and great boldness to proclaim the truth and to live differently in this lost world. May we be the salt and light of the world. Amen. You'd rise for the benediction this morning. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Grace and peace be with you. Just as a quick reminder, it's next uh, Sunday here at the church, 4 o'clock for the drive-in um, baby shower. And if you have are willing or would like to donate uh, candy for the children's Easter egg hunt, please uh, bring those as well. Grace and peace to you this morning.